0: The reading today is from Acts chapter 17, verse 16 to 34, uh, and it can be found on page 1111 of the Blue Bibles, or you can follow along on the screen behind me. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day, with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him, some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations. that They should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others.
1: Hi everyone, my name's Cam Maxwell, I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, yes, Matt has um, tasked me with the job of heading up the team, of uh, heading out to Tonsley. Uh, So with his announcement in mind, you could probably imagine the last few weeks have been uh, a bit distracting for me personally, you know, working out whether we're going to go ahead with our timeline as planned or what's going on. Um, But thankfully, I've had Chapter 17 of Acts bouncing around in my mind over this time as well, which has been uh, really encouraging. I've actually found this whole series in Acts we've looked at uh, over the last few weeks uh, as a series extremely encouraging, as the Gospel goes out getting preached in all kinds of new places, uh, which is really what church planting is all about. Uh, If you remember, or if you have been around, the book of Acts started with Jesus promising that His Holy Spirit would uh, come and change the world. Uh, He'd do that through the lives of a small and pretty clueless and fearful bunch of disciples. Um, Jesus said that they would testify about Him, they would uh, witness to Him uh, from where they were in Jerusalem and then all through the world. And in our series, we looked at some very incredible moments in history as, first, God's Spirit did come and radically change these uh, fearful, uh, cowardly kind of disciples. Uh, They stand up, they start testifying boldly about Jesus... And then we've seen uh, throughout the weeks that very unlikely people not only heard the gospel, uh, but they believed. Uh, we read about Samaritans and Ethiopian eunuchs, even Roman centurions heard the gospel and have received uh, eternal life in Jesus' name. Uh, where we got to last week, we saw Peter, uh, one of the apostles. He got to see firsthand the Gentiles responding to the gospel. But so far, what we've seen is Gentiles still in Judea. They haven't yet taken the Gospel beyond uh, their home country. And so today, we've jumped quite a few chapters forward in the story. We have the Apostle Paul now. Uh, He's far, far from Judea. Um, He's finally, at the prompting of the Spirit, been out and about for a a number of years, I think, um, taking the good news to the big, wide world. Paul is really, uh, I guess, the first international Gospel missionary, uh, and is often the case, it's not through the careful planning of the staff team that we're looking at this passage on you know, international mission on the very day that we're saying goodbye to the Purdies, uh, our very own homegrown international gospel missionaries. Uh, I think we can put that coincidence down entirely to God's kindness, not our own careful planning. But I guess thinking about the Purdies, as we'll hear more from them in a moment, but as we hear about what they're doing uh, heading off to Chile, um, I guess I want to start with a question, how do you process that, hearing about what Malcolm and Ainsley and the family are doing? Many of you will know them, they're they're lovely, Uh, they're a very intelligent and uh, easygoing family, they're seemingly very well adjusted, uh, with a very kind of normal Adelaide life, Um, but they're about to turn all of that upside down and do something very hard, Uh, take their family halfway around the world, uh, I'm sure it's a nice place, but that in itself is a very difficult thing to do. Normally, people don't do that kind of thing unless there are giant stacks of cash involved and I'm pretty sure in this case that's not happening. What are they doing? When you hear about people doing really hard and costly things like this for the sake of global mission, how do you process that? There's all sorts of things, I suppose. It's really encouraging, it's admirable, it's exciting, it's sad to say goodbye to some of our own. Perhaps we might think, well, it's a bit mad, it's a bit over the top. Perhaps, though, I think uh, for myself, I, I sometimes just kind of get challenged by this because we see, this, uh, we see people doing hard things and we think, well, I wish I had that kind of commitment to Jesus, to do hard things, to take the gospel out there. Uh, seeing this, I think, confronts our own commitment to Jesus and making his name known. So I think it's right for us on a day like today, as we're saying goodbye to a number of people taking the Gospel to different parts of the world, it's right for us to ask, well, am I doing these hard things too, costly things for the sake of Jesus? Hard things like, uh, I suppose, uh, giving so generously to the work of missions financially that it affects my lifestyle. Uh, perhaps saying no to really good and enjoyable and entertaining things so that I have more time and energy to pray uh, for global mission even just, I think, staying motivated to keep trying to talk uh, to those I know here in Adelaide about Jesus. I think we know, I know, I know, uh, that when push comes to shove, we can often take the easy and the safe option, the option that's perhaps best for me, as I assess it, but the option that's not necessarily the best for a world that knows Jesus. What then do we do? Uh, What will help us, I guess, stay motivated in our Christian lives to keep doing those hard things, those costly things? How do we keep growing in our courage uh, and in our zeal for a world that knows Jesus? Well, there's the question. Welcome to Acts chapter 17. I think in the first few verses here, as Paul first gets to Athens, we see the key. I think it's the key to remaining so invested in the growth of God's kingdom we won't even stop to count the costs to ourselves. So, if you would, uh, with me, be, um, just try and picture in your mind's eye the Apostle Paul, a sophisticated and very educated man, a very, very intelligent, there's no doubt about that. Now, Paul has been, uh, at this point, going flat out for years, at least his last few months have been very, very intense. He's been travelling around, meeting new people everywhere, He's evangelising, he's been uh, discipling people, just casually starting new churches everywhere he goes, exhausting uh, and unrelenting workload. On top of that, uh, just imagine the stress of having mobs chase you and want to kill you regularly, Uh, that's actually why Paul is here in Athens. He's been chased out by an angry mob uh, out of town because he's preaching the gospel so he's run to Athens to kind of lay low for a bit. Now, I don't know about you, if that was me, uh, with that kind of stress and that sort of relentless workload, ending up in Athens sounds pretty good. I'd be very, uh, very happy to grab a euros and some baklava, uh, wander down to the Mediterranean Sea for some time on the beach, put my feet up for a bit, enjoy a well-earned holiday. Uh, Even more so, someone like Paul, who is sophisticated, he's intellectual, Um, I think this would be a great chance for him to check out the intellectual capital of the entire world. Uh, Athens, even in Paul's days, was this ancient city renowned for its intellectual and philosophical pedigree. He could have gone to the Acropolis, the the Temple of Zeus, visited a few libraries, had a great time. He could recharge the batteries, just taking it easy while his friends, waiting for his friends. Now, Paul could have enjoyed some idle time in Athens. The problem was... There were too many idols in Athens. Thank you for your joke, uh, if you're laughing at my joke. I spent ages on that line and that was, the, that was the best I could do. Thank you for your laughter. Verse 16, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Now, he was greatly distressed. Uh, the kind of language here is, is about as strong as you can get. So, you know, think of the time in your life when you were most distressed. Uh, it, it's that kind of thing. He's in Athens, this beautiful, historic, cultured city, and he's freaking out about a few statues. Like, what was he expecting in this pagan city? Like, why is he distressed at these idols? It seems to me that Paul is distressed because he knows God. And he is horrified that God is not being worshipped and adored as he ought to be. Far worse, adding insult to injury, instead of that, dumb statues made by people, are instead objects of praise and honour. Our Creator, our Saviour, the only being in the universe deserving of our, of our praise, the God who's compassionate, who's terrifyingly holy, who's overwhelmingly glorious, He's being ignored and worse, replaced with trinkets. Now, of course, Paul knows the Old Testament better than any one of us, And so he knows deeply the great theme of the Old Testament, actually all through the Bible we see time and again, God is not okay with this. God is concerned about His own glory, He doesn't share it with others, and rightly so. In fact, that's the main point later in this chapter in Paul's sermon, that God has made us to know Him, to worship and to be in relationship with Him, and He hates it when our lives and our hearts are spent are devoted and worshipping other things. So what we see with Paul here is, I think, the key for remaining committed ourselves to doing the hard things for the sake of spreading the Gospel. See, if if we were just becoming comfortable with the fact that God is not being honoured or uh, adored by those around us, if we just take that for granted as a given, like I often do, then I think we're neglecting some very core truths about God and about who He is and His concern for His own glory. He is worthy And it's the worst kind of insult to him to be replaced by idols. It is distressing when we sort of reflect on it like this, that our God would be dishonoured. So I suppose the question then is, what would Paul see if he came to Adelaide? Of course, we're far too sophisticated to bow down to little statues, um, but I'm sure it wouldn't take him long to see that we do uh, have a city full of idols. They just look different. All of us could list the many ways that lives in Adelaide are built around all kinds of good things, but not God. See, the way that idolatry seems to work for us is that we often take good things uh, and we treat them as if they can do what actually only God can do. So, we'd take things like family life or our careers or our finances. We look to them for the things that give us ultimate purpose and meaning. To be sure, those things can contribute meaning to our lives, but it's only God who can give anyone satisfying ultimate purpose and meaning, identity, security, and so it's only God who deserves our praise and worship. So, Paul's distress in Athens and the actions that follow, it comes from knowing and feeling uh, the great offence it is when God doesn't get the praise He ought to. And so, as we, as we pray and, and seek to grow in our desire that God's name might be hallowed, that it might be revered in our world, and then when we see the ways that's not happening in our own city, instead of shrugging our shoulders, the right response here is, is distress, to grieve, and from there, to swing into action. Um, I read this week uh, a bit about a man named Henry Martin, I doubt uh, many of you have heard of him, I hadn't until I stumbled across him. There's a uh, picture of this uh, dapper gentleman behind me, I believe. This guy had an absolutely brilliant mind, a bit of a Wes Johnson you might say. Uh, he graduated from Cambridge University uh, about 1800, he won all sorts of prizes there and uh, his, his life was set up to be uh, pretty, uh, pretty well sorted out as a brilliant young man uh, with that kind of education. But then he met the people who started the Church Missionary Society. Uh, that's the same organisation that the Purdy family are heading off with. Uh, CMS had just kick started uh, this wonderful uh, movement taking the gospel out into the world from England. So, Henry Martin, after uh, finishing uni, he went to get some good gospel training. He went to Bible college and uh, learnt the ropes in ministry. Then he set off uh, from England and the sort of security and comfort there to go to India. Now, this is 1800, right? Early 1800s. That's not an easy thing to do. Um, In India, he was involved in starting schools and establishing churches. He just casually translated the New Testament into about four different languages, I think, uh, perhaps more. That was before he turned 30. (laughs) Makes us all look bad. It gets worse, though, don't worry. Uh, From there, he sets out to the Middle East. He wants to take the Gospel to Persians and Arabs. Uh, So, one of the things he did was uh, give his own translation of the New Testament to the Shah of Iran. And then he died at 31 of poor health. Um, I suspect that wasn't helped by his lifestyle, that kind of uh, problems with his health. You think, well, was his life wasted? Dead at 31, such a brilliant guy, so motivated. Well, I guess the question is, what drove him The thing that grabs me about this guy is something he says, and I think this captures really what uh, Paul is all about here in Athens. Again, on the screen behind me, Henry Martin says, I could not endure existence if Jesus was not glorified. It would be hell to me if he were always to be dishonoured. Now, I think this is a man who understands reality perfectly. He understands who Jesus is, and he's had a glimpse of his glory and his grace, and I think that challenges me to see Adelaide or Santiago, our whole world through this lens of reality. Jesus does deserve all our glory and our praise. Now, alongside all this, I think is the obvious uh, warning that if we are in growing in our kind of awareness of this reality, it might just uh, take the fun out of some of our holidays from here on in. Uh, even that trip to Adelaide Oval, we've got plans. Because we might find, rather than a great experience, seeing the sights, having a great time, switching off, we might just find that if we have eyes to see, we see countless people whose lives are poured into worshipping stuff and insulting God's honour. And that will move us, won't it? It will hopefully move us to prayer and, I think, likely action of some sort as well. Now, at this point of the sermon, uh, we've been going for a while, we might be starting to get a bit worried, we've only not even got through the first verse yet. Uh, don't worry, the sermon will pick up pace a little bit from here. I just, I just think we need to spend time getting the heart right, because everything else Paul does in his chapter flows from there, and uh, it'll be the same for us as well. So, let's keep looking through. Verse 17... Uh, After his great distress, Paul gets about doing what he normally does. He first goes to uh, the synagogue and he reasons, he he discusses, he dialogues there uh, with Jewish believers, or with Jews. Um, Then, uh, Paul goes out into the streets. He's reasoning in the marketplace, day by day, with those who happen to be there. A bit later on in the chapter, in verse 21, Luke, uh, the author of Acts, he tells us a bit about Athens. He says, in verse 21... People spent all their time there doing nothing but talking about and listening to the newest ideas. Uh, Luke doesn't sound to be the biggest fan of Athens, uh, perhaps not a huge fan of philosophical debate or you know, long-form podcast, might not be his thing. But I think that comment's helpful, it helps us, I think, picture what's going on in the marketplace in Athens, to imagine what Paul's doing. It's not like he's standing in Rundle Mall trying to yell at people as they don't want to listen and walk past him and do their shopping... Uh, The marketplace in Athens seems to be more a place where you could go and find people to chat with and share news and ideas. And I think there's nothing more interesting, uh, as far as interesting ideas, than the good news about Jesus. And sure enough, as Paul starts sharing and preaching about Jesus, it causes a stir in verse 18 and a bunch of philosophers begin to debate and get involved in exchanging uh, questions and ideas around the Gospel engaged in conversation about Jesus. Now, this marks a bit of a change uh, in the Bible story so far. Um, In previous chapters, Paul has uh, definitely shared the Gospel with lots of Gentiles, that's not new, but mostly he's just shared it with regular people, farmers and tradespeople. Um, Here in Athens, he's speaking to the most intellectual, most educated people in the ancient world. Athens is the home of the great philosophers, um, uh, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle... And Paul is sharing Christian belief with these kinds of thinkers. He's engaging with them intellectually. It strikes me that this is a big moment, uh, because if the Gospel is to go out from Jerusalem to all the world, it should be open to scrutiny at the highest level of thinking, to be questioned and, and investigated. Because otherwise, Paul would simply get to Athens and he'd ask these brilliant thinkers, oh, just, just leave your brain behind and listen to about Jesus. It's not what He does, is it? Now, if you're visiting us today as, as someone exploring uh, Jesus for the first time, or perhaps the first time in a long time, uh, firstly, welcome. Uh, we're so glad to have you with us. Uh, it might be a bit of a surprise to hear me say that uh, the Christian faith can, and should, and has been thoroughly questioned, and v- as vigorously as possible, by the most brilliant thinkers the world has seen. Christians, I don't think, get the best kind of press, do we? Uh, It seems in any movie or on social media. uh, The vibe is that Christians have mostly left their intellect somewhere behind in the Middle Ages but there really is a depth of thought and inquiry all throughout history and right now that's ongoing that makes the Christian faith very credible and compelling for deep, thoughtful people. I even surprised, I think, all of us to know that in the last 10 or 20 years, there has been a massive resurgence in the work and thinking about the topic of God in the philosophy faculties in universities. Philosophers are interested in in the topic of God again. He's not dead. And so, as Paul starts engaging with philosophers here in Athens, I think he's modeling for us something really important. The gospel is true. So, we shouldn't be scared to hold it out for others to critique or investigate or question, that's a good thing to do. Because philosophy, at the end of the day, is about discovering what is true. Of course, that's not to say that if we have the perfect set of arguments and if we're all perfectly rational, we'll all get there and believe it. In fact, we'll see that in a moment that the response to Paul's sermon isn't like that at all. What this does mean though, uh, is that, as we've seen all through Acts, God can save unlikely people. Even the most intelligent people, even academics, uh, can be saved by the gospel. So as Paul here debates with the philosophers, he obviously says enough that's interesting to them, and he gets an invite to share at the Areopagus. Now, that's a huge chunk of rock uh, you can go and visit in Athens today. I think there's a photo behind me, I think, showing uh, the Areopagus... Um, In Paul's day, and for centuries before that, it was a place that you'd go to debate philosophy and uh, some legal matters, sort of town council kind of issues. Uh, The elite of Athens would gather there to discuss and hear and decide on important issues. So, Paul is getting an opportunity here to speak to the elite of the elite about Jesus. Now, it's possible they just wanted some cheap entertainment, they love just listening to kind of things, but what an opportunity... Now, I find it personally a great shame we're not told about Paul's preparations or his, his nerves or um, he kind of is, uh, what he's thinking through in, in this kind of moment. But you can kind of imagine it, I think. Imagine that you're on holidays, let's just say, for our sake, you're in, in England somewhere. Uh, you start chatting to someone. Next minute, you've been invited to the Oxford University philosophy department. Uh, you've been asked to give a speech about Jesus to the faculty uh, and their PhD students, the best thinkers in the world. And after your presentation, they're going to hammer you with questions. Now, that's kind of uh, worst nightmare material for most of us, I imagine. Whatever Paul's thinking, it's amazing. It seems to me he stands up and he just nails it. Um, the way Acts is written, it makes it sound like he just kind of wings it, you know, off-the-cuff kind of sermon. And if that's true, that's totally unfair to the rest of us preachers who grind it out week after week, a sermon this good, off-the-cuff. Uh, it's obvious, though, that Paul uh, really has God's Spirit working through him in this moment. That's been the case all through Acts. It's clear as well Paul really knows his stuff, not just the Gospel, he really knows his audience. This is the astounding thing, he's studied the city, he's walked around, he's taken notes, he knows their poets, uh, the lyrics from some of the, you know, the favourite songs of the day. Um, This isn't obvious from the sermon when you first read it either, um, especially if, like me, you have no idea what an Epicurean or Stoic philosopher thinks or believes, um, today, I will spare you the lecture on Greek philosophy, but uh, if that's the sort of thing that might be of interest, check out Wikipedia, Epicurean philosophy, Stoic philosophy, and then go and read Paul's sermon again. It's astounding, because what you see Paul doing is he's taking truths and language and ideas they believed and liked and knew, and he twists them a little bit or extends them uh, to tell them the Gospel story in a way that makes sense to them. He uses language and concepts that are familiar after studying their culture and their thought, so there's something in that, for all of us, I'm sure, that before we share the Gospel with others, we do need to listen, we need to understand and know what they think about the world. Now, rather than uh, me sort of stand up here and preach about Paul's sermon as he kind of gets up to deliver it, I thought what I'd do instead is kind of preach Paul's sermon or uh, tweak it a little bit to kind of sit, sit, uh, to suit our context. So, uh, here we go. People of Adelaide, you wonderful philosophers, you... Uh, I see that in every way, you are very religious. Am I surprise you? But as I drove around your city and looked on social media and your local news, I saw the many, many things you worship: the things you feel and devote your lives to that take extraordinary amounts of energy and money and time. As I looked at all this, I even saw two giant silver balls inexplicably balanced on top of each other. <laughs> You're clearly a confused people searching for something. You're searching for meaning, you're searching for truth, for something of substance to build your life on. You've filled your lives up with so much, you have more food, more money, more leisure time, more stability, more comfort than any other generation in history. You even have Farmers Union iced coffee, and yet, you're still not satisfied. For all the shine, for all the happy photos, there is so much emptiness in this city. And I'm not just talking about the nightlife well, what you're all searching for, I'm actually here to tell you all about it. See, this world did not make itself, God did. He made this whole universe and He rules over every single second of existence. The world only turns because He makes it so. And this God, He he doesn't live in church buildings or beautifully renovated factories that could be used for a church building, if you get the lease for it. God doesn't need those things. He doesn't live in those kind of buildings, which is good for you in Adelaide, because you've turned most of them into bridal shops anyway. He doesn't need anything from us. Unlike the kind of gods you devote yourselves to, that demand your soul, your whole life, your whole energy, we need everything from Him. We need everything for that next breath we take. We need it from Him. Everything comes from Him. And what's more, he has had his hand on human history. From the first man he breathed life into, he has orchestrated history to unfold in such a way that nations would rise and fall, some cities would be settled by convicts and others by noble, free settlers of good stock. God did all of this. Every part of human history he has stitched together so that we might seek him. That's why he's done it so that we might reach out and and find Him. Not that He's hidden, not at all. He's right there, all along, giving us life. As some of your own poets have said, we're all someone's daughter, we're all someone's son. (laughs) If you're not sure who that was, John Farnham, uh, thank you for the laughter there. We are God's children. and We can't treat Him like our personal assistant We can't just sort of hope he would keep indulging us, giving us good things so that we can ignore him. That's not how it works. He's about relationship. And it's criminal for us to take those good things from him and make them out to be gods uh, in how we worship them. There was a time when God would kind of put up with that kind of ignorance, uh, but that time is over. It's a time for us to now turn away from uh, that sort of life and to uh, live Uh, repenting of the way we have treated God and start living with Him as our Lord and our boss. Because He has set a day when He will judge the world. Yes, even judge Adelaide. He'll judge it with justice. He will right all the wrongs, including judging us for how we have treated Him. But there is still time to turn and be reconciled to Him because the one who will judge, Jesus is the same man God sent to reconcile us with Him. The proof of all this, the proof that judgment is coming and the time to repent is now, is that God has raised this Jesus from the dead. Now, I reckon if Paul was here uh, preaching for us today, it would be far better than that, obviously, but what a great sermon, Uh, not just because it's short. Um, I hope you find that helpful, just reflecting on that, because it's such a God-centered view of everything, isn't it? God at the centre of creation, of history, of each and every life. God the beginning, God the end, God the judge, God the Father, God the Saviour. What we see, though, with this sermon is a bit of a mixed response, if you're looking from verse 32 onwards. Now, that shouldn't surprise us. That's exactly what Jesus taught His disciples. Uh, You might remember the parable of the sower. When people hear the Gospel, some will reject it outright. Others will want to know more, and others will turn and be saved. What strikes me about this though, the way the story is told, is that the audience seems to be happily listening along, uh, engaged, right up until the point that a response was called for. Uh, that is, they sneer at the idea of a resurrection but it seems to me they're sneering because that's the evidence that they need to do something. It's not just a nice set of ideas or a nice story Paul's telling. As rational and as uh, satisfying and as complete worldview uh, I think Christianity offers, Ultimately, the good news about Jesus is never rejected because of intellectual reasons. It's always because of reasons of the heart. A call to response to bow the knee before Jesus. I think that's what's being sneered at here. Um, I don't want to finish today with an instruction, well, therefore, go and be like Paul and join the local philosophy club and see how you go. Uh, Paul's very unique. Uh, His actions here we won't be able to uh, copy. Though I should say, for some of us... uh, Engaging more in reasoning and apologetics and uh, sharpening up your mind more to do that and finding more opportunities would be a wonderful response to this passage, I think. That would be for some of us, for all of us though, I think uh, what we need to do is reflect more on Paul's distress at seeing a city where God is not honoured. For some, uh, for some of us that might be appropriate then to repent of uh, our indifference about God's honour. I think for all of us, it would be good to pray that we might have eyes to see, to see things as they really are, a God who is majestic and glorious and a world who doesn't honour Him as we should. See, if we have those eyes to see, see our world as we should, I think we will be distressed when God is not honoured and we'll be praying that His glory and honour will be made known. When we do this, I'm convinced He will use us, He'll give us good things to do in response, to play our part in making His name great. Um, I've found this passage very timely for myself and I think timely for all of us as a church as well, uh, because we're in a season of recommitting ourselves to doing hard things together for a world that knows Jesus. Uh, it's why we're encouraging everyone to really get behind the Purdy family, uh, doing something kind of hard ourselves, which is committing to praying for them regularly committing to give very generously to enable them to go, uh, committing to caring for them across continents. We do that, yes, because we love the Purdies, but even more so, because of the thought that in Chile, Jesus is not being honoured, distresses us. Of course, we have plans to plant a church, uh, to take the Gospel to a new part of town. Uh, whether you're doing that or staying here at Colonel Light Gardens in a new stage of mission, we all have a lot of hard gospel work to do together, there is so much to be done at both churches. It's work for all of us. Praying, serving on teams, evangelism, inviting people along, welcoming people, all those things and more. We're going to be doing all those things, not as a favour to Jamie or to myself or because, you know, we're concerned about Matt's sanity. Um, Matt laughed a bit too hard at that one at nine o'clock, maybe a bit worried. We do these things because we care about God's glory and we want a world that knows Jesus. But above all, I think our response to this passage is that we keep praying for our world, for our city, that God's name would be cherished and that Jesus would be worshipped and adored. So would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, hallowed be your name. Amen.